So I wonder, why do you make decisions? Would you ever do something if it wasn't what you wanted? Would you only do something if it satisfies your desire? Do you feel that you have to have justified something in your own eyes before you ever do anything? Well, many of you know I'm a student at school, and as part of the sixth form, the uh, final two years of high school, the school uniform is relaxed, and we don't have to wear a set shirt and trousers. Uh, we have much more choice about what we wear. However, we're not allowed to wear shorts. And uh, in light of the glorious summer weather that is almost unceasingly bestowed upon Great Britain, uh, some of the students, including myself, questioned why this is so unacceptable. We saw no reason why we weren't allowed to wear shorts. We saw the rule as being arbitrary. We saw how it made us feel uncomfortable and how we felt hot. We didn't like it, and we couldn't see any justification for it. Now, you may say this is just a bunch of rebellious teenage boys getting upset over petty things, and you may be right. Uh, in fact, I'm quite sure that wearing shorts for the last few weeks of the summer term is not going to have a profound consequence on my life. I'm also, however, not about to argue for why wearing shorts should be allowed in my sixth form. What I'm going to point out is that we were looking inwardly at ourselves. We were looking at our desires and what motivated us, and we were trying to assess the validity of the rule by our own standards, our whims and our desires. And unless we could see justification for it ourselves, it wasn't necessary. I think we can often fall into the trap of thinking that if we can't see the reason for something, then whatever that may be, it has to suit... Sorry. <laughs> but if we can't see the reason for doing something, we shouldn't do it. And in our culture, we often think that if we can't see the reason for it... Uh, it's not necessary. It has to suit our needs, our desires, what we want, if we're going to do it. I think we can all find ourselves demanding that an action be justified in our own eyes, for our own benefit, before we even consider doing it. We have to have a good reason which suits our desires and benefits us. Otherwise, just forget about it. I think we can all admit that, like me with the shorts... We want to have something suit us before we do it. Throughout the Bible, there are lots of commands that sound as ridiculous as not wearing shorts in the middle of summer. And the one we're looking at this evening, the call to foster a culture of submission, sounds particularly ridiculous. We live in a culture that wants to have everything our way. We choose what we like, what we don't. We decide what is true and what is false. We even choose what is good and what is bad. We live in a culture focused on the individual that hates being told what to do and what not to do. The call for submission seems archaic and, and oppressive. We think that we've been freed from that old way of thinking. But as we will see, Peter will call us to a command of radical submission, not just to those we like or get on with, and not even to those who we don't like, but even to civil authorities. As a culture, we seem to be allergic to submission, there seems to be some visceral, internal, instant reaction to the word, which seems to go against all that we think we've learnt and progressed on. It's in the midst of this culture that we're going to be asking the question, why should we foster a culture of submission? Is it because it's always going to be what we want, or seems to make most sense to it, us, or are there other reasons? Why should we foster a culture of submission, and what is the motivation for doing so? And as we will see, Peter gives us some answers. He gives us the reasons behind fostering culture of submission. 
the culture of submission. He gives us the heart-changing, spirit-inspired words here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. So why should we foster a culture of submission? Firstly, we should foster a culture of submission because we are Jesus' people. Let's reread verse 11 and uh, also 9 and 10 just to give us some context to what Peter's saying here. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his... uh, Sorry who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Christians, we are Jesus' people. We've been selected to hit... Sorry, I need to slow down. As Christians, we are Jesus' people. We've been selected to be his. We've been chosen... And what are we chosen for? Well, to be his possession, to be Jesus' people. We see the consequences of being Jesus' people in verse 11. We are sojourners and exiles. We don't fully belong here where we are on the earth now. This isn't our ultimate fulfillment. We're God's people residing in a foreign country temporarily, waiting for the full and final coming of the kingdom. We're not of the world, we're Jesus' people. I wonder how much we actually feel this, though. Do we actually recognize how radically different we are as Jesus' people to the rest of the world? We don't actually belong here in this corrupt world. We are waiting to be raised to glory with new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. I wonder if it's a bit like staying in the bed and breakfast in France whilst you're working abroad. You're there for a few days, but... You go home to your permanent home back in the UK. And actually, it's only a temporary accommodation. And even while you're there, you're in a foreign country. You're not quite the same as the French people. And I think it can be a bit like that with, um, with this. We're Jesus' people. We're waiting here on the earth temporarily, waiting to be glorified with new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're not the same as the people we're around. So we're Jesus' people, we're sojourners and exiles. Another point uh, that Peter makes is that we are free people. This is another way in which we're different to the world. We have been freed from the foolish way of living we used to live, and we've been freed from the slavery of sin. And we're now servants of God. We're Jesus' people. It's, it's, uh, this comes out of verse 16. Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So again, yeah, we're freed from this old way of thinking and we're free to live as servants of God. This, this is radically different to our old way of living. And because we're Jesus' people, not only are we uh, sojourners and exiles, we're also free, we think about submission in a different way. We think about it differently to the rest of the culture around us and the rest of the world indeed. I think sometimes when we hear the word submission, thoughts come flying into our heads. We think about manipulation of others, abuse of power, or maybe just begrudging obedience and iron discipline. Maybe we see submission as some part of a zero-sum process by what I give you is what you get, and what I get is whatever I can get out of anybody else. Maybe we see it like this because we think we need to get our own way. What I want is good for me, 
And if I can get someone else to do something I like, then that's good. And if I do something I don't want for someone else, then that's bad. But as Jesus' people, this isn't the way we think about submission. We don't have to get our own way because we have everything we could ever need in Jesus. As Jesus' people, we can deny the self in a way that's truly liberating. We're not bound by the constant need to do what we want. We're not bound by the passions of the flesh and an unwillingness to do that which is contrary to our desires. In fact, we are enabled to give to each other and to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. We have been chosen to be Jesus' people. He's bought us at a price, and we're temporary residents in this world waiting for the full coming of the kingdom. I wonder what it's like to be free from being controlled in different, sorry, feeling controlled in difficult situations and relationships. It would be different because we'll realize that we have nothing to lose. And what would it be like if we worked out the implications of being in Christ, realizing that we don't have to try and satisfy the whims and desires of our heart? What would it be like if we realized that we can serve without expecting anything in return, without being given anything ourselves? What would it look like if we realized that we can serve even when we're facing hostility in return? What would it look like to give without reward? Because we know that we're Jesus' people, and so what we can get out of other people doesn't really matter. I'm currently working towards the Duke of Edinburgh's award, and in order to pass it, I have to volunteer somewhere, so I'm volunteering at Bernardo's. I have to play some sports, so I'm playing some badminton, and uh, I have to improve a skill, so I'm learning Greek. And uh, you have to do this over a period of several months, and in addition to this, you have to complete a three-day expedition. So about a month ago, I went uh, up to the Chiltern Hills, which is a bit north of London, with a group of six other students to do a practice hike, and on the hike, um, I found that I was able to care for their needs. I was able to ask how they were, lend them kit, help them out with different tasks, and even though I was genuinely trying to care for them, one of my teammates mocked me for what I was doing, um, and despite this, I continued to help and serve my teammates, even the one who ridiculed me for it, even though I faced opposition. You see, I knew that I was one of Jesus' people. I knew that My identity was in him, and what other people thought of me didn't change my value. They may ridicule me, and they may have contempt for me, but that doesn't change anything. Knowing this enabled me to foster this radical culture of submission where I considered the needs of others above my own, even when others thought ill of me for it. I wasn't bound by the need to try and serve myself and get what I could out of my teammates. Because I knew I was Jesus's, I could submit myself to them. Because we are Jesus' people, we've been freed from being controlled by trying to instantly gratify our heart's desires. We are free to submit to others, valuing their needs above ours. It frees us from fearing what they might think of us, allowing us to radically submit to them. Secondly, there are many benefits to a culture of submission. Um, When we foster a culture of submission, it brings us good things. So let's read verses 13 to 20. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter tells us how the authorities are put in place by God to praise those who do good and to punish those who do bad. He says that it's the will of God that by doing good we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When we submit to authorities, we silence those who have not had their eyes opened, who can't see the truth. Um, Maybe this illustration will help you understand what I'm trying to say. At my old school, every morning and afternoon, we'd meet for registration. I was the class for five minutes in the morning and 25 minutes in the afternoon. Made of people I didn't necessarily have any other classes with. Um, And at the beginning of year 10, I was put next to a girl who was in the seating plan and, uh, sorry, who was put next to me in the seating plan who didn't particularly like me. In fact, uh, the previous year, she and a group of other girls had slandered me. She was a girl who manipulated people and took advantage of any influence she had over them. And each and every morning and afternoon when I went into class, I said hello to her and asked her how she was. Now, rather than slandering me or trying to manipulate and cajole me, she didn't quite know what to do. She was surprised and taken aback because she didn't expect me to treat her needs and how she felt above my own desires. Sometimes fostering culture of submission will silence the ignorance of others. Being free to treat the needs of others above our own goes so against what the culture expects. Let me say that again. Being free to treat the needs of others above our own goes so against what the culture expects. They might be taken aback by it, or they might find it hard to speak badly of someone who is kind to them. By fostering a culture of submission, we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Secondly, we glorify God. When we foster a culture of submission, we also glorify God. When we do good, others will see that and glorify God when he returns. Uh, We see this in... (laughs) Sorry, I should look this up. Um, Sorry, in verse 12, he said... He says, uh, Peter, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's very much just straight out of the text. If we do what is good, we glorify God, because they will glorify him as a result of seeing our good deeds. And as a people have been chosen by God to be his people, have been brought out of the darkness into the light, have been healed by Jesus Christ's wounds, do we not want to bring him glory? How else could we say this? When we foster a culture of submission and do good things, those around us will see that. When God comes back, people will praise God because of the good things they have seen. So fostering a culture of submission will bring God glory. However, even though we may silence the foolish of ignorant people, sorry, 
silenced the ignorance of foolish people, and caused God to be glorified by fostering cultural submission, we may still suffer unjustly for it. But even when we suffer unjustly for fostering cultural submission, we can consider it a gift in God's sight. We may not know exactly how, but God says it's a gracious thing. It's further down here in verses uh, 17 to 18. And he says that, sorry, not 17, 18. uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God once endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing when we suffer unjustly. Even if we can't quite see how it is, we can know it is because God says so. I don't cook very often, but when I do, I enjoy it quite a lot. Please don't tell my parents because they might start getting ideas. Uh, A couple of months ago, I cooked a curry. I pureed the onions with the garlic to make an onion paste, and I chopped up the lemons into slices and all the other vegetables too. Uh, I put them into the wok along with some grated nutmeg. Now, because of the onion paste uh, and the lemon, someone who tasted my curry might not have been able to taste the nutmeg. They might have questioned whether there was really any nutmeg in the curry. But since I was the creator of the curry, I decided what spice there was going to be in there to give a specific flavor, and I knew exactly what I had put in there. I could say for definite what was in there. I could say that there was nutmeg in the curry. I think this is what suffering unjustly for creating a culture of submission can be a bit like. It can be a bit like eating my curry, but not seeing the nutmeg in there. You can't quite see it. And we, we don't quite see how suffering unjustly for creating a culture of submission is a gift. People couldn't taste the nutmeg in my curry but I knew there was nutmeg in the curry. I put it in there. I could definitively say there was nutmeg in the curry. Similarly, God defines what a gift is and what a gracious thing is. So even if we can't taste the nutmeg or feel how suffering unjustly is a gracious thing, it is because God has said so. He definitively knows what a gift is. This doesn't mean that we'll never be spoken against by non-believers. It doesn't mean that we'll always be caused to praise God by the good we do. And it doesn't mean we'll always see the benefits of suffering unjustly for creating this culture of submission. But it does mean that it's possible. We're Jesus' people, so we think about submission differently. And when we foster a culture of submission, it brings truth, and it brings glory to God. It brings these benefits. Now, some of you might be thinking, Chris, I get what you're saying. I get that we're Jesus' people. I see how it means that we should think differently about submission. I get how fostering a culture of submission brings all these different benefits. But it still sounds crazy. It still sounds really hard. And it still sounds unreasonable. It still sounds like wearing shorts in the middle of summer. I think it would still feel unreasonable, even if I gave you a hundred reasons why you should foster a culture of submission. I think you're right. It's always going to sound unreasonable. So what is it that's going to make us want to foster a culture of submission? Well, it's when we see that Jesus submitted himself first. Third point, the unmistakable example. 
in Jesus we find the one who suffered and died for us. Let's read verses 21 to 25. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like street, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In Jesus, we find the one who not only did good, but who committed no sin at all, who was completely perfect. He submitted himself to the authorities who put him to death. Not only that, but Peter even says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus submitted himself to the ultimate authority for our sake, and he suffered on our behalf. And underneath this submission for our sake, we see that he did it because he was submitting himself to the ultimate authority, God. Jesus did all these things perfectly, which we failed to do. He gained the benefits of submission for us, and now as his people we can share in them too because of his perfect submission. It's because he first submitted himself to the Father that we can. Now some of you might be saying, Chris, I still see all these benefits to submission, uh, but won't people just take advantage of me? I don't want to let my guard down by being nice to people because they'll just manipulate me and use me. Because we're Jesus' people, we're free to love others unconditionally. So when we submit to others and consider their needs above ours, they may just take it as a free ticket. But as Jesus' people, we don't follow the old saying, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. You bloody my nose, I'll bloody your nose. We're free to love others, even if they don't return it. Others of you might be thinking, oh, if I'm going to submit to others, does this mean that I give up all I need and desire? Does this mean I lose my identity and I'm called to some sort of self-loathing or self-contempt? No, it's not this. It's not saying you ignore your needs or you treat yourself as though you're without value. This isn't saying you lose your identity. In fact, in no longer being bound by your desires... You're free to value the needs of others over ourselves. And when we serve them and do that, we find our true identity. We don't have to be caught up in what we want and selfishly looking inward. We can truly help and serve others. And that gives us our true identity. Not only did Jesus submit himself to God so that we can have all these benefits of submission... He's the ultimate example. We can look up to him. And he perfectly shows us what it looks like to foster a culture of submission. We know what it looks like to foster a culture of submission by looking to Jesus. And because he did it first, we can. So we've seen why being Jesus' people changes the way we think about submission. And we've seen the benefits to submission. And we've seen how Jesus is the ultimate example entrusted himself to the ultimate authority for us.
now that you've seen why we should foster cultural submission, some of you might be wondering, well, what does this look like? Uh, what would fostering a culture of submission look like for me? And so I'm just going to try and bring it down to earth a little bit. If you're at work, what might this look like? Well, it might change how you deal with an impatient boss. Maybe they're impatient or ungracious in how they give out instructions. But rather than resenting this, you realize that you can serve their needs and others by not just doing what is expected, but going further, making sure your work is easy for others to use and so you can serve their needs above your own. This is how you can foster a culture of submission by placing their needs above your own desires. What might this look like at home? Well, it might mean doing something for your spouse, even when they're a bit cranky. Even if it'd be easier to get upset because of their attitude, you can foster a culture of submission by putting your spouse's needs above your own feelings. Maybe at school, it might mean doing what the teacher asks, even if they are frustrated and angry with other students, even if they're not being very fair. It might mean being kind to the kid who doesn't quite fit in, even if other students might think less of you for it. In these ways, you can foster a culture of submission by putting the needs of others above your own. Let's remember the unmistakable example of Jesus. He submits himself to the Father first. Now, as a result of his submission, we are his people. As a result of his submission, we can be confident of the benefits of submission. And because of his submission, we have a perfect example of what it looks like to foster a culture of submission. Submission doesn't lead to oppression and slavery. It means being liberated from our own sinful tendencies. It means giving other people life and truth and showing them what God is like. So let's be the people who foster a culture of submission. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, you would work in our hearts uh, to change our desires, that we put other, needs, uh, other people's needs first above our own. I pray that you'd uh, change our hearts radically, that you would change the culture in our workplaces, in our homes, in this church. I pray that you'd uh, change our lives through, this, uh, through the working of your Holy Spirit so that we foster this culture of submission where we radically submit to others, putting their needs above our own. Amen.